Where, oh where, is the fear of God? Where are the men of God who will cry out with the psalmist of all who says, my flesh trembles for fear of you and I am afraid of your judgments. The psalmist David declared of the wicked that there is no fear of God before his eyes. And the apostle Paul, he echoed this claim in his letter to the Romans. So what about today? Well, one thing's for sure. Christians today are addicted to sexual sin in record numbers. In this episode in our series, The Church Addicted, we explore how a lack of the fear of God has contributed to an epidemic of sin in the church. I'm your host, Nate Dancer. This is Purity for Life. At our 2017 Pure Life Conference, Steve Gallagher delivered an inspiring message entitled, The Spirit of the Fear of Yahweh. We believe you'll hear his heart and gain strength and insight from this powerful message. Well, it's a blessing once again this year to be in God's presence in the special way that is here every year at this conference. It's definitely the highlight of the year for Kathy and me. It's just a tremendous blessing. Um, The title of my message is The Spirit of the Fear of Yahweh. And it comes from Isaiah... 11.2, which is a prophecy about Jesus. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And of course... That is the word Yahweh there. The spirit of the fear of the Lord and all of these things were manifested in his life. And I'll be getting uh, to him a little bit later. But I just want to start with that sense that this was... something that was very powerful in the life of Jesus Christ. You know, we, as Brother Dave mentioned yesterday, we think of the Old Testament God, you know, with the thunderbolts and Mount Sinai and so on, and then, you know, he went through this transition and New Testament, Jesus comes and he's this uh, wimpy sort of guy and he's full of love and everything, but... God did not change. God does not change. And there was something holy and tremendously powerful 
in the life of Jesus Christ. And when you really get into a study of his life where the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart, you fall trembling down before him. I can promise you that. I want to open in a word of prayer. And Lord, I want to open just like you taught us to, to pray to the Father, this mighty God, hallowed be thy name. And Lord, I ask forgiveness on the part of all of us for how flippant we have been with that sacred name, how little we have reverenced it, how little we have reverenced you and the things of God. What a tremendous need there is in all of our lives to live with a much greater reverence for you. Lord, I do thank you for all the work that you have done in people's lives here in this sanctuary in the past. Each person here represents a tremendous heavenly project that has gone on for years, mostly unseen, mostly occurring in that unseen realm where your spirit, your holy spirit operates where angelic beings operate and fight and war against demonic spirits. I thank you, Lord, for the work that has gone on in that unseen realm in every soul here, whether they yet belong to you or not. You have been at work. You have been trying to bring them to a place in their hearts. And I thank you for it, Lord. Only you can do it. I thank you for the immense goodness you have shown to all of us. The mighty loving heart that has been expressed to us countless times in countless ways the multitude of kindnesses you've done to each of us mostly have gone unnoticed and unthanked. And perhaps greatest of all is that amazing, amazing grace that has allowed us to enter into a relationship with this sacred, holy being. 
thank you for that, Lord. I treasure your grace. I love your grace. It means everything to me, Lord, and I thank you. And I pray, Lord, that today, I don't care the quality of this sermon, I don't care a bit. It will probably be the most poorly done sermon that we've heard. It's fine with me. I don't care, Lord. What I ask for you to do here, Holy Spirit, is to instill in our hearts a proper respect and reverence and fear of God that will never leave us. Lord, if you will do that, I will just be so grateful. And I ask you to do that, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Sounds like my throat's not doing so good either. If George Barna were to take a poll of American Christians about what they fear most in life, I suspect it would be something along these lines. You would hear a lot about the fear of physical suffering and death, fear of losing one's job or financial <clears throat> security, fear of rejection or humiliation, as we heard yesterday in that excellent word from Brother Dustin. We would hear a lot about that. Fear of uncertainty of the future. Fear of failure. But where, oh where, is the fear of God? Where are the men of God who will cry out with the psalmist of all who says, my flesh trembles for fear of you and I am afraid of your judgments. Modern dictionaries define fear as a distressing emotion aroused by impending danger, whether the threat is real or imagined. <clears throat> and, you know, um, I also studied the word fear in the Hebrew and Greek before I did this, and um, I took out all the references to the fear of God, <clears throat> and I just looked at the way the word is used in Hebrew and Greek in other occasions outside of the fear of God. And I don't think I can remember seeing one solitary place, and there might have been, but <clears throat> that definition described fear the way that it's used throughout the Bible, just like this modern definition. A distressing emotion aroused by some impending danger. That is the word, that is the way the word is used in the whole Bible. But somehow when we take that same exact word, whether it's Greek or Hebrew, and we apply it to God, somehow we've got to dumb it down to where it doesn't really mean that. 
God has instilled within us the emotional capacity to be alarmed by danger. And he did that on on purpose, dear ones. And he also did it in light of spiritual danger, eternal danger. We have in the West a group think, and we heard a little bit about this yesterday also, um, liberalism, globalism. It's a corporate mentality. I see, you know, when Trump came into office, he had all these great plans, and he was going to do this, and he was going to do that, and he was going to do this, and I'm telling you, a hundred days into it, and he looks like he has been withered down to nothing by the tremendous pressure of this global system that is demonically inspired, and he's already losing it. Now, I'm no Trump, you know, whatever, advocate, not at all. He's a godless man, but he was trying to do something to go against some of this, and he has been shouted down because he is facing a spirit that is way more powerful than he has ever seen before in the business realm. But that same spirit is at work in the corporate church of the West. And it's not liberalism and globalism. It's something different. It is globalism, but it's a different slant than we realize. And it comes, I hate to even put this beautiful, awesome term in this context, but it is the concept of grace that has been exaggerated and twisted and corrupted and turned into licentiousness. And there is a group think in the the evangelical church of our day. And if you try to go against that flow, as Brother Dustin brought out yesterday, you will soon find out that there is a tremendous power behind that. And it's not the Lord. It is now deemed politically correct in the church to put all the focus on God's positive side, if you will, for lack of a better term. His love, his mercy, his compassion, his grace, which I love him for all those things. They are real. You can't over... You can't exaggerate in a certain sense any of those things because he is all those things and far more. But he is also other things as well. He is a holy God. And he is a just God. And he will not be mocked. You know, the problem with exaggerating one aspect of God's character and ignoring the other is that we cannot handle it. We're like a, a child. Try raising a child. You parents know. 
you raise a child, there's no way that you can just lavish that child with nothing but praise and, and, and um, love and everything else and think that that child is going to turn out right. There has to be a balance of, you know, grace and truth. There has to be that side where he gets a swat on his tail occasionally or something. He better have some respect for your authority or he will run over the top of you and he will rule your house. And people are the same. We're arrogant by nature. And so what we want to do is diminish God and get him down to our level so we can stay in control, so we can call the shots, so he will do our bidding. And I'll tell you something, if you have a small sight of God, his commandments will seem very small also. And as Brother Dave shared yesterday, he equated fear of God with obedience. You won't fear God. You won't obey him if he's small. And that's part of the problem in the church today. I, in fact, I think, Brother Dustin, I think if someone came here from some faraway land and never had any exposure to Christianity and came into the church and spent a year in the American church, I think he would probably think there must be some uh, commandment in the Bible that I haven't run into yet that says you shall not fear God. And some people actually believe that. Many people do believe that Basically, the New Testament meant that the fear of God was replaced by the grace of God. It's not true. It's not true. The problem is the fear of God just doesn't fit in with our grace narrative that we have written. Solomon saw things a little different. He said, the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. And I can tell you that you will not get to first base with, in Christianity until you really know what it means to experience the fear of God. You can pack your head full of all kinds of knowledge, <clears throat> but until you know what it means to tremble in the presence of God, you're not going to get anywhere. You will never understand grace until you fear him. You can learn all you want about it. Read 50,000 books on the subject, and you won't know the first thing about it until you know what it means to fear God. This word despise is really the, it's the exact opposite of fear. It means that, you know, a person becomes so high-minded that he just doesn't, he just kind of thinks lightly of God's wisdom and God's ways. 
In today's culture, it seems politically correct to trivialize, trivialize the things of God, to treat lightly God's commandments, to blow off the need to walk humbly before our Lord. And the outcome of this, the church is full of sin, carnality, and worldliness. It's the very lawless culture that the word of God predicts for the apostate church of the end times. Paul, if he came into the American church, would take one look at it and he'd say, my God, we're in the middle of the apostasy. I don't think that any biblical character who walked with the Lord would recognize the church as the people of God if they were to come here and spend time here. I don't think they would. Yes, God help us. So what I want to do this morning for a few minutes is I want to go through and look at a few... a few Bible characters and what they thought about the the subject. Let's go back towards the beginning. Abraham. Abraham understood the fear of the Lord. You're probably not going to keep up with me with your Bible, so I would just not even worry about it. (laughs) Pastor Steve will read the verses. They'll be good. In Genesis 17:1, it says, Now when Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to him and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me blamelessly. And the response that Abraham had, he immediately, his legs went out from under him and he collapsed and fell right on his face before God. We had a half-day of prayer like we always do. Well, we do it once a month. Uh, you graduates know that. And um, we had that Thursday and prayed for you. Spent that time praying for you. <clears throat> and we had a Bible study. And in that Bible study, we uh, studied this name of God, El Shaddai. And we <clears throat> did a Bible study on it. <clears throat> And one of the leading Hebrew uh, dictionaries said this about that name. It says, El Shaddai, excuse me, El Shaddai is connected with the Hebrew verb Shaddad, to deal violently with, devastate, ruin, spoil, violently destroy, to be utterly ruined. That's where that name comes from. And so I don't think it'd be too far off base to say that El Shaddai means the one who invokes terror. Abraham understood that he needed to walk carefully with God. We're very flippant about the Lord, but these people weren't. He understood he needed to treat God with 
great reverence. To walk soberly before the Lord and to never, ever treat lightly the things of God or to have a careless attitude about the things of God. And I think if Abraham sat in our church services, I'm not saying it's always this way and it certainly wasn't this way this weekend here, but by and large, I think he would marvel over the lack of sobriety in the church. And I think he would view much of our worship service, worship services as some kind of like light-hearted cheerleading session, or worse, a self-exalting, self-focused, self-centered performance. And I think he would view a lot of the preaching that goes on as frivolous nonsense. I think he would probably shake his head and say, there is no fear of God in this place. It ought not be, brothers and sisters. It ought not be that way. Job understood the fear of God. You know, the word El Shaddai is found... 48 times in the Old Testament, and 31 of those occurrences happen in the book of Job. And when you think about the story, it's not hard to understand why, right? I mean, that man's life was turned upside down. And when he chronicled his story later, he used this term, El Shaddai, over and over and over throughout the the book. And we see in chapter 6, for the arrows of El Shaddai are within me. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Chapter 11, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of El Shaddai? Chapter 23, it is God who has made my heart faint and El Shaddai who has dismayed me. And yet when you go back to the first chapter, listen to how he described himself. He said that he was a man who was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. But 41 chapters later, listen to what he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job came to understand the fear of God. Moses understood the fear of God. In Exodus 19, um, the story there is that God is preparing the people to receive the Ten Commandments. And it says that there were thunder and lightning flashes. We can relate to that this morning. There were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and they've very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And it says in Hebrews 12, that the sight was so terrible 
that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. So later, at the end of his life, when he gave that tremendous sermon, which turned out to be the book of Deuteronomy, he said, now Israel, what does Yahweh your God require from you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Moses had been to the holy mountain and he understood the fear of God. Aaron understood the fear of God. I'm going through these stories because I wanted to get into you. In Leviticus 9, Aaron and his two sons had just been commissioned to be the high priests of the nation of Israel. Tremendous honor, a million people in this nation. And these three were going to be the ones who uh, represented the people to God and God to the people. And so in chapter 9, they prepare the sacrifice. And once they had got the sacrifice all prepared, they're on the altar. It says here, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And then the story continues in chapter 10. And it, the way it seems, if I understand it correctly, this same time next week. So there's been an intervening week in between 9 and 10. And now it's just going to be uh, Aaron's two sons that are going to do this whole thing themselves. And so they do. They go through and prepare all the sacrifice, get it all ready. They're waiting for the fire of God to descend upon it. And it doesn't happen. And they're waiting. And it doesn't come. And they start getting impatient. And I think during that week, I think that they were starting to really enjoy this thing of being <clears throat> in such a prominent position. I think it started getting to their heads. And I think they started becoming prideful. And so anyway, they're waiting and waiting. And it reminds me of when Saul was told to wait for Samuel, but he did the sacrifice himself. And so they got tired of waiting for God, so they kindled a fire and they put it to that sacrifice, and instantly the fire of God shot out and consumed them on the spot. This is the God who you talk to regularly, I hope. This is the God of grace, the God of love and mercy. And you know, there's something in me that wants to kind of rise up inside and say, Lord, you burned these men alive just because of that? Really? I think of someone being burned alive. I don't know if you heard this story a couple of years ago. That Jordanian pilot got uh, captured by ISIS and they put him in a cage 
And they poured gasoline or something on him and they lit him up and he died screaming an excruciating death. God did that to these two. In fact, can I tell you that that's kind of what hell must be like? There are billions there now. That is their experience now, today. You know, whenever that kind of thing rises up inside me, I have learned to respond this way and only this way. God, you are right and I am wrong. I don't know anything. You don't have to say that quite so confidently there. (laughs) He's been wanting to say that for years, you know, whoever it is. I mean, really, the reality is the Lord knew what he was doing. You know, man looks at the outward. We look at he just did some little thing, and that's how we look at it. But God's looking at their inner world, their, their uh, heart. And they, he sees these two young men full of a cocky attitude in front of the Lord. He sees what goes on inside of us. And he, I mean, the Lord told Moses what happened. He said, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. There is a side to God that isn't very real to us in the church today. Jesus understood the fear of God. I've already shared that verse out of Isaiah 11, you know, and maybe it's kind of hard for us to comprehend that Jesus is God incarnate. How could he fear God? That just doesn't make sense in my logical mind, but it's just true. You see the way he lived his life and the way he interacted with God when he prayed. I will say that no human who's ever lived held Yahweh with deeper reverence and a more holy respect than did Jesus. And yesterday, I don't know if I can articulate this properly, but yesterday when we were worshiping, I got a revelation of Jesus that I've never had before. It didn't have anything to do with anything going on. It just, the Lord just showed me something. And, you know... Basically, it was Jesus, well, I guess it was in heaven and multitudes of believers there, and he is the king of heaven. And, you know, he is in bodily form. He's got a resurrected body, and, but he's the king, and everyone loves and respects and reverences him. But over him is this great being, Yahweh, And Jesus is a mediator between us and God. And he's a mediator for a purpose because it's our only hope. In Hebrews 5, it says, in the days of his flesh, and this is referring to the great struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, he was hurt because of his godly fear. And the reality of what he was afraid of, it wasn't the, as horrible as that death was on the cross as the passion depicts. That wasn't it. You know, it says in the New Testament that Jesus took on the sin of the world. Actually, it says it in Isaiah 53 too. But you think about every filthy thing ever done, every disgusting thing, every foul thing, every ugly, prideful thing, torture and that man that was set on fire, just everything that was, has ever happened, just roll it into a mass of disgusting filth. And Jesus had to enter into that and the spiritual death that came with it. And for those six hours, he hung there on that cross. Paul said that he became our sin. He became that foul thing. He was so loathsome to look at that he, even his heavenly father wouldn't have anything to do with him. Man. And he went through all of that because there was something he feared more than that. It was the fear of displeasing and getting out of the will of God. The publican understood the fear of God. There are ex-publicans all over this place, including myself, living without any cares, just going for it, indulging completely in sin, partying, sleeping around, these publicans stealing from people regularly, just had a flippant attitude, and in one instant, an encounter with God, El Shaddai, the smirk on the face, the lawless attitude is instantly God, gone, and the next time you see him, he's at the temple, beating his chest, crying out for mercy. Man, if you have never experienced that, I recommend you give it a try sometime. And as a complete contrast, there's the Pharisee, full of himself, convinced of his righteous standing before God, arrogant and unmerciful to other people. And he's standing there with the attitude that God owed it to him. There are people in here who are like that publican. I know, and I could point people out, and I just don't want to, but there are many stories in here. Well, you saw one story up on the screen yesterday. A former publican, a fraud in the ministry, but God, and there's a place for repentance, thank God, we can always repent. The early church understood the fear of God. 
The first time we hear that concept is in Acts chapter 5, you know, and by now Pentecost has already happened. The fire of God has gone into that 120 people. There is a holiness in the early church. It was astounding. There was love, just overflowing love with each other and, and such deep fellowship. People gladly would give their stuff away to be able to help their brothers and sisters in need. You know, it wasn't enforced communism or socialism or something. They gladly and freely gave up things they owned, like Barnabas is an example. Gladly sold some of his property and gave the money to the disciples to dispense with it. And then there's this leading couple in the church. It's a sense I get because people with money tend to be leading members of the church. And they say, oh yeah, we're going to sell some property and we're going to donate it to all these dear poor slobs around here in this church. And God, New Testament, struck them down when they lied to Peter. Struck them down. And it says, great fear, megaphobos, came over all who heard of it. That word phobos, fleeing from something that causes terror. Great terror. I mean, think about it. If God struck down a couple of people in here, you don't think you'd be doing some soul searching? You know, just for exaggerating a little bit, he struck them dead. Who is this God that we're so familiar with and treat as if he's a common thing? Who is this God? And not long after this, Saul started ravaging the church and then he started throwing people in prison and stuff. But because the fear of God was so strong Amongst those early Christians, just like Dustin shared yesterday, because they feared God, they had no fear of man. And then we get this verse, our theme verse in chapter 9. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Paul understood the fear of God. His introduction to Christianity, he's going up to Damascus, full of himself, just like the other Pharisee. And all of a sudden, a light shines from heaven. He sees Jesus Christ glorified. Same thing happened to him that happened to the people. Same thing that happened to Abraham. He collapsed in terror. And he was blinded by that light. And he had to be led into the city by the hand. And for three tormenting days... He laid there, unable to escape the reality, not only of the things he had done, but who he was as a person. 
He had caused the death of some of God's most dear, beloved people. He had blasphemed the name of Christ, but worse than any of it was the foul thing that he was. And for three days he lived in that torment until Ananias came and the Lord came on him with grace and love and freed him of the guilt and set him on a new journey. Man, don't tell me that Paul didn't understand the fear of God. Yes, it's true. He countered the legalists of his day with a message of grace that was greatly needed at the time. That's right. But he's also the one that told the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When have we ever been taught to take that seriously? God's word does not say things it doesn't mean. And he told the Corinthians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, wait a minute, they don't tell me that. Yeah, I know. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. This is what drove this man on. This is why he relentlessly, for the next 30 years, did everything within his capacity to lead men to Christ because he knew what was just over that line of death, what people would face on judgment day. Paul understood the fear of God. Peter and the writer of Hebrews understood the fear of God. This will be my last one. You don't look like you can handle much more. <laughs> Think of the experiences Peter had. You know, when he first started, became acquainted with Jesus, and one night or one morning he had just come in from fishing all night and Nothing, you know, just a lousy night of fishing. And Jesus, this rabbi from Nazareth, is there. And he said, take me out. Let's go out and catch some fish. And Peter's like, listen, guy, I, you know, I know you're a prophet and all that. But listen, this is what I do for a living, okay? They're not, they're not biting tonight. Jesus said, just take me out. All right, takes him out, catches more fish than he probably caught in the whole year that one night, or right, right within moments. It wasn't because of that, but God used that, and God will often do that, use some circumstance, and took the blinders off of his eyes for just a moment, for just a moment. He saw that the Holy One of Israel was sitting right there in his boat and he immediately collapsed. Down he went on his face, crying out, Lord, depart from me for I am a sinful man. I think that's when Peter got saved. 
And then the next occurrence was he and James and John are with Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses and Elijah show up and they're fellowshipping with Jesus and Peter, as his usual way, is babbling on about something or other. And all of a sudden, this voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When he heard this, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And then, of course, the night that Jesus was betrayed and they're all at the Lord's Supper and Peter's once again full of himself and Jesus is trying to tell them, you guys are going to deny me tonight. And Peter just immediately, that's all he needs to hear. Lord, there is no way. I mean, maybe all these flakes will leave you alone or whatever. I will, I will die on your behalf. And then as we heard yesterday, a little servant girl comes up and he just, well, I almost said something I shouldn't have said. <laughs> he needed a diaper maybe is another way of saying it. But it says in Luke that just then when the rooster crowed the second time, Jesus looked over at him. And man, again, fell apart inside and went out and wept bitterly. And I think he wept bitterly for two whole days until the resurrection and Jesus showed himself to him and restored him. And then, of course, he was the one standing there that announced the death sentence on Ananias and Sapphira, watched God kill them both. He understood the fear of God. <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews, or, I mean, um, he wrote this towards the end of his life. He said, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. There's that judgment scene that was so real to them in those early days. If you address his father, that judge, conduct yourselves in fear. And then he tells us why. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And say, basically saying, conduct yourselves with a distressing emotion aroused by impending danger. And he's trying to tell us do you realize the price that has been paid so that you can be saved? Do not treat this lightly. And the writer of Hebrews said something similar. He said, for if we go on sinning willfully, 
There are men in here who should be trembling right now. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as a common thing the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of God? grace for we know him who said vengeance is mine I will repay New Testament and again the Lord will judge his people it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God You know, anyone, whether it's in Old Testament times, New Testament times, church history, anyone who has had an encounter with God has had that same reaction. They just instantly fall apart. Daniel absolutely passed out. And then we have the modern church. You know, the reason why we sit in silence, and you graduates and you guys know, I think, I hope so, you understand the purpose of it. Now, please hear me. When I came in this morning, and we had asked and put it up on the screen every, between every service that this place is to be, remain quiet, and it was raucous in here, and it was so upsetting to me, just so upsetting to me. And Kathy knew I was upset, and she said, Most of these people, this is the church, this is what they're used to. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I wasn't angry with you. Not too much, anyway. (laughs) It's upsetting because in my heart is a reference for God. And I take this very seriously when I walk into a sanctuary, whether it's at Pure Life or here or anywhere, anywhere where God is supposed to meet with us. To me, it's a holy thing, it's sacred. And I felt that churning inside me. I don't know how to explain it to you, what that's like. Just upset inside, just the lack of reverence for God.
A man named Mike Iaconelli wrote this, and I'm going to read what he wrote. I would like to suggest that the church become a place of terror again. A place where God continually has to tell us, fear not. A place where our relationship with God is not a simple belief or a doctrine or theology. It is God's burning presence in our lives. I am suggesting that the tame God of relevance be replaced by the God whose very presence shatters our egos into dust, burns our sin into ashes, and strips us naked to reveal the real person within. The church needs to become a gloriously dangerous place where nothing is safe in God's presence. Nothing including our plans, our agendas, our priorities, our politics, our money, our security, our comfort, our possessions, our needs. We aren't afraid of God. We aren't afraid of Jesus. We aren't afraid of the Holy Spirit. As a result, we have ended up with a need-centered gospel that attracts thousands but transforms no one. He can wish for that to happen, but it's not going to happen. Because the Bible tells us what's going to happen, and it is happening. And we are part of it. I am part of it. This apostate church that has moved so far from the fear and reverence of God, that takes him so flippantly and treats him so flippantly, of course, Sin runs rampant in our midst. How could we expect it to be anything other than that? The Bible predicts a great falling away. And falling away implies momentum. If I fell off of here, there would be momentum, and I can't just change my mind halfway down. There is momentum heading down. And there is momentum spiritually. We all have momentum going one way or the other. The church at large, not everybody, and I don't mean to imply that. Please don't read that into what I'm saying. There are many godly people in this country. But by and large, the, the momentum of the church is heading somewhere. And you have to fight against it, as Dustin shared yesterday. You have to stand against it and go against that flow. So a number of years ago, I developed a momentum test. I actually gave it here the first time. Uh, it's about six years ago. 
that I came up with this here at the conference, and I'm going to go over this real quick. Just going to blow through this. Do you guys have that up, Nathan? You don't have it. Okay, breakdown in communication. That's all right. I'll just go over these. 19 signs you are part of the great apostasy. Number one, prayer is either non-existent or mechanical. Number two, you know the word, but you don't really live it. Number three, earnest thoughts about eternal things are no longer regular and gripping in your life. Number four, sins of the body and of the mind can be indulged in without an uproar in your conscience. By the way, you know, some of these things, we probably all can relate to some of these things. But if this is the predominant, as I'm going through this, you really desperately need a breakthrough. Number five, aspirations for Christ-like holiness have ceased to be dominant in your mind. Number six, the acquisition of money and goods take up a major part of your thinking. Number seven, you can sing worship songs without really meaning what they express. Number eight, you can hear eternal issues treated flippantly and not be moved to indignation. Number nine, your main concerns are of your temporal and earthly life. Number 10, conflicts with others are not a major concern to you. Number 11, you no longer hunger for a deeper life in God. Number 12, you don't live with a full and grateful heart. Number 13, you have little concern over and make little effort to meet the needs of others. Number 14, you always see your level of spirituality in positive terms. Number 15, you are more concerned about your pet doctrines than you are people's lives. Number 16, sports, recreation, and entertainment are a large and necessary part of your life. Number 17, you are more concerned with your image than with the reality of your life with God. Number 18, you are full of bitterness or criticism or pride or covetousness or lust. And number 19, you have a head full of knowledge and a heart that has grown cold to God. I will let you decide for yourself where you are, what the momentum of your spiritual life is. You know, you were given good teachings yesterday. Good teachings. And I know what Josh meant when he said this morning to not lose what you have learned but you're not here to learn more information 
You need an impartation that can only come from the Holy Spirit and can only come if there is an entrance into your heart, that if your heart has cracked open so that the Holy Spirit can come in there. I can't make that happen. I wish I could. I wish I had the wherewithal. I wish I could just pound you with words and make you whatever. I can't do that. I don't have the wherewithal. But I can pray, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. Because I know God gave me this message. It wasn't, I had a message. It was a nice three-point sermon. Y'all would have liked me at the end of it, too. (laughs) But God stopped me. And he gave me this word very clearly one morning, just like I just gave it to you. And therefore, I know that he is speaking to hearts this morning. I fear, you know who I fear for? Are those who are so far gone, you just can't even hear the voice of the Lord anymore. You're just so far gone. Your conscience has become so dulled, your heart, so hardened and calloused that the voice of God is like someone having a little conversation a mile away, just so faint and far away. Where's, uh, yeah, you guys come up here. Paul, that's fine. My Lord, and Savior, my God. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit who has been with us this entire weekend would speak, speak loudly in people's hearts. I pray that people would be sobered, Lord. I know the flesh hates this. The flesh wants to get out of this atmosphere as quickly as possible. Lord, I pray, I know there's people in here who've done the Christian thing for years. They know all the right sayings. They know how to sing the songs. They all know all the right books. But they never have relinquished control over their lives. They are still in control. That is the opposite 
of salvation. I pray, Lord, it's with the picture in my mind as a line drawn in the sand and you beckoning that person to cross that line and to come to you. You beckoning people to jump off that cliff in faith and to put their trust in you, not in a religious system, not in some formula, some theologian, dead theologian came up with, who's got all of everything figured out in his academic reasoning. But they would open their hearts to the living God, the Spirit that embodied Jesus Christ, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of Yahweh, that they would open their hearts to that and bow their knees before this mighty God. I pray, God, that you would do that, Lord. Humble and sober people, Today, as we conclude this conference, Lord, humble and sober them, I pray. And I absolutely believe you're doing it, Lord. I absolutely, I thank you, Lord. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you because I know one day people will look back to this conference. Finally, finally they humbled themselves before you. You can come to this altar and I'm not going to make it easy for you. For once, can you do something? Get out of the fear of man and do what you're supposed to do. Move here, I pray, Holy Spirit. Move on people's hearts, I pray, God. Do your mighty work, Lord. Do your mighty work, O oh God. Save. Save to the uttermost, Lord. Save to the uttermost. How can people harden their hearts to you, God? I can't understand that. How can they just be so flip about this holy God and go out of here and criticize the speakers and Pick it all apart. Find some way to justify themselves. How, Lord? I just can't understand it.
How could it be? And they just drift away back into the same hard-hearted place they were before this weekend. Lord, I just pray for every person in here. Regardless of where they are or how they've responded, Lord. I pray that you will have your way in their lives in the days ahead, Lord. Lord, I pray if there are those here who have that vulnerability to self-condemnation, Lord, that you will stifle the voice of the enemy that would bring something that is not of you. It's not a fear of God that causes them to fall before you. It's some kind of contrived fear based in pride that the devil appeals to in certain people. Lord, I pray that you will Set them free of that, God, that they would know what true fear of God is. The fear of God should be coupled with the comfort of the Holy Spirit and something isn't right. If it's based in self, self-condemnation, Your terrors are always with the hopes of salvation, Lord. I know that. We need to be humbled and put in our place, but it's always with the idea to save us, to help us, to do good to us. Lord, I pray that you will just impart something to every person here. Plant something in every heart. If this is some kind of emotionally driven sermon that pounds on people, it's not going to accomplish anything. It'll be gone in days. But Lord, if you plant something into hearts, it will only grow stronger. People will become more reverent. They will be grieved to go into their churches and see all the frivolous activity, the frolicking. They will be grieved to see a flippant attitude. They will go and find a corner to get with God and cry out on behalf of others. Lord, do a work inside of our hearts.
if people see and detect and sense the fear of God in our lives, that we walk very carefully around this mighty being, if they sense that, they will be affected. I thank you, Lord, for the way you've been with us this weekend. We love you, Lord. We love you and we worship you and we praise your name. We praise your name, Lord. You're worthy. You're worthy. You're the only one who is worthy of any kind of praise. We worship you, Lord. We bow down at least in our hearts, we bow down before you and we worship you. Amen. As we close today, I want to ask this simple, straightforward question. Is there a lack of the fear of the Lord in your life? I would encourage you to pray and seek God to increase the level of honor and respect and yes, fear with which you regard his holiness. Because a lack of the fear of his holiness gives us an excuse to run after sin. That's how we end up in the church, but no different from the world. That's all for today's show. We'll see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.